My mom hates it when I call her out, so that's why I do it. Um, so good morning to the two of you. My mom's right here in the black. Please wish her well after the service. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> the problem is she brings chocolate chip cookies each week to our house, and I have a feeling there might be a little bit of a gap between the last time and the next time on uh, that. But I was with Andrea this last week and uh, realized that it's probably been a little bit of time since I did a proper introduction. I kind of semi-randomly just sort of pop up here every once in a while, and there's a number of faces that I no longer know. There's many faces that I do know, so we thought it appropriate to do just a short intro of some kind. So my name is Peter, and Pastor Kevin and I have been good friends for the better part of a decade or so, I suppose. We meet pretty regularly and talk about life and faith and theology, and he's a trusted friend. He's sort of my own little personal Yoda, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> oh, I get my, I'm sure my phone is already, t- he watches this stuff live. So Kevin, thank you for being my Yoda uh, on that. Uh, I do teach. I'm one of the lead professors of the Christian Ministry Program at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, as well as at Bethel. And I don't really know how to process being a part of multiple organizations with their own values and desires and ways of life. So I just sort of deny it all and just keep moving forward. Uh, I get a chance to be on the Faith Radio Network, which is fun. It's sort of the talk radio wing of KTIS. I uh, used to be a morning show host until 4.30. Got way too early to get up and leave the kids behind. So I'm a regular guest and sometime host there, and it's very fun to talk with people all around our country about our faith. Five great kiddos at home. Uh, Hallie and I have been married just past 25 years this last June, so we're very excited for that. Thank you. We actually, I think some of you know, we met at the youth group here at Wyzetta some, uh, oh, what would it be now, uh, 33 years ago. I chucked her into a snowbank on our first night in which we met professing the undying love that only a teenage boy can at that point. Uh, but the youth group here had such a positive impact on my journey. And there are, as I said, many faces that I know, and you just need to know that none of you after 35 years look any different than you did when I was a teenager. I don't know what kind of antioxidant concoction you're all drinking, but I would like a a bit of that. Kevin and I were talking about Botox before the service, and that was helpful. (laughs) Uh, I do love good chocolate. I love travel. I love musical theater. I love to play golf. So if you're a member of a country club, feel free to invite any time. I think at last check, I understand about 15% of the Bible at this point. And that is way down from having understood 100% of it with certainty when I was 20 years old. (laughs) And then I realized that those are mostly just the 20 verses that we all commonly memorize. And then that was about it. I became a Christian when I was six. And I think I finally authentically started loving God when I was about 35. So I hope some of you can at least resonate with that part of a journey. I would say, at this point, Jesus has about 87% of my heart. And that last 13% is a little rough, isn't it? Uh, to be unwed from and unwound from the things of this world, to continue to give your heart to the King, is a daily journey of surrender. So it is a delight to be with you this morning. I'm mindful as we pray and head into our time looking at the character of Ruth in the scripture, kicking off a new series, that if you, like me, the events of the last 24 hours in our country, in El Paso and in Dayton, are uh, truly impossible to process. It's uh, there's, there's no one way to talk about these things. I don't know what to say other than to say uh, we can pray for these people's lives who have been shattered in the blink of an eye. 
Uh, we can minister where we can. And we can be mindful again this morning that our future and our hope is not in the shalom this world can provide. It is in the empty tomb and that there's a kingdom to come. And our job moving forward is to shine that light in the world wherever and however we can in the midst of really difficult and impossible to understand circumstances. So with that, let's pray as we head to our time into the word and move forward from here. God, we as a church do pray for those lives that were irrevocably shattered. That somewhere and somehow the faithfulness of what we just sung, which is true, will be true in a whisper across the people's hearts that don't know where to turn and how to turn this morning. We do trust you still in the midst of the darkness. And we look forward to that time when you do return and set all things right. And until then, we will walk it out and try to shine the light of the future in the present so the world may know that you really are real. Empower us to do that work <laughs> among us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. So the new series that's being kicked off, you probably saw a little slide up there as I did during our time, or just after our time of worship, is Thinking Young. And Kevin asked me, as a 48-year-old, to kick off the series for him, given the obvious and gigantic age gap that exists between us. Now, he did text me that and said I could use that line this morning, so that was uh, that was good. But it's, it's a series that's meant to look at some of the biblical characters about whom we read in the text, and looking at their life and what they did, it may appear at first glance to try to take some lessons from their life that are only for the young. But if we look at their lives and think about it a little bit with further consideration, we see that the decisions they made and what was present in their lives really transcends any idea of youth. It is for young and it is for old. It's also for male. It is for female. It is for the upright. It is for the sinful. It is for the rich. And it is for the poor. And some of the titles in this series in future weeks will include Don't Be Afraid to Dream, Don't Be Afraid to Hope, Don't be afraid to face your giants. And this week we have the topic of do not be afraid to head into the unknown on behalf of the kingdom of God. Do not be afraid to head into the unknown on behalf of the kingdom of God. And the biblical character we'll look at briefly this morning is one of my favorites in the text. Certainly would be a mentor of mine if she still was walking on this earth. And that is the young Moabite woman, Ruth, and how she chose to follow into the unknown and the rippling effect that had within God's kingdom to redeem an entire people, making very difficult decisions to let go of the past and move towards the future. Now, before we get into her story, though, there's a few things that are probably worth saying, and that is that if you are like me, past the age of 40 this morning, the idea of heading into the unknown is kind of a roll-your-eyes moment. Sort of, "Mm, why would we do that? We're past that stage in life. Heading into the unknown is for those who are young, because heading into the unknown involves a certain amount of risk, typically speaking. And risk-taking, at least according to American wisdom, is something that is living sort of this inverse relationship with our age. And what I mean by that is that the younger you are, or the younger you are, the more risk you can take. Right? That's sort of how we think. And the older you are, the less risk you should 
take. The younger you are, go ahead and take some chances. Head into the unknown. If you have a bit more grass under your sandals, as I do, you take less risk. Sort of the conventional wisdom of the age. For example, there's a few I can think of, and I'm sure you can too. If you are a 25-year-old and interested in the stock market, you can go ahead and risk maybe $5,000 in a high-beta pharmaceutical preclinical stock, hoping to hit a hundred-fold home run. You might have a 1% chance, and people say, take a shot. Take a risk. Because you're 25, you lose $5,000, sure, you can easily have a lot of time to recover. But if you're 60... Don't ever put your money in that kind of situation. It's now time to go to the mutual fund, the dreaded mutual fund. Because you don't want to risk all that hard work of an entire life of savings. 25-year-old may switch to a new career, take a chance, head into the unknown. 60-year-old, no chance, right? You leave a stable career and head into the unknown. The goal is sort of to get to 67 to get a pretty good Social Security payout. And if you can get to 70... And max that baby out. Now you're set. You never change jobs. I think about eating is even a higher risk move these days as you get past 40. A 25-year-old can pound down a 24-pack of Twinkies. I literally, I watch my son, who is almost 20 years old, and when my mom, mom, you're here today, welcome. Um, And when my mom brings over these like three dozen chocolate chip cookies, the dude, I'm, this is not an exaggeration, he literally lays on the couch in a perfectly prone position, burning no calories at all, and he just drops the cookies one by one into his mouth. There was one day when he got up and he said, why am I so hungry? And he ate like nine of these cookies. Oh, I forgot to have lunch. I mean, typical 19-year-old, right? I know for me, if I eat one cookie, that, that, that those calories sort of do a loaves and fishes thing, don't they? <laughs> It's like, that was 160, and somehow it became 10,000 in my stomach, you know? The spirit's moving somehow, and making these things go to that many calories, so it's high risk to eat when you're (laughs) older. So risk is for the young. And we're sort of taught, both subtly and overtly, that what you do as you move forward in life and as you get older is that you make sure that you mitigate whatever risk might be in front of you. And you do whatever risk-reward analysis you need to do. And you might even make the, the sort of patented pros and cons list when you make a decision, right? Try to help mitigate that risk. You, if all the pros are over here and a few cons over here, you make a decision. And we call that responsible decision-making. And we can even Christianize it a little bit, and we can call it good stewardship, Don't take a chance. Make sure you try to control whatever unknown and known variables are in front of you to try to keep a life of stability moving forward. Risk is for the young. It is not for the old. And here's a problem with that. You probably recognize some of the problems with that. Is that if scripture is authoritative, and I believe it is, if scripture is God-breathed, and I believe it is, if scripture is useful for training and rebuking and other stuff I can never remember in righteousness, and it is, I don't find anywhere in scripture where it says don't take a risk or it's only for the young. I don't see anywhere in scripture that good stewardship involves making a pros and cons list and making our decisions for stability moving forward. It feels like it's more the stuff of a Lian Chin fortune cookie than it is actually of scripture. Because I can't find a spot where Jesus tells his followers, you go ahead and follow me and I'll give you a nice life of certainty and stability with a minimal risk. 
I don't see it in the early church either as they went forward in uncertainty and confusion. Did they not so often holding councils, don't know what to do. This is happening. I have no idea what is up, but we will continue to follow God into the unknown and trust him on behalf of our future, even if that future means a life of suffering, turmoil, and pain. I will give up my stability, says the early church, on behalf of the possibility of partnering in God's ever-redemptive activity in this world. It's more, you know, sort of interesting when I thought about this stuff in this last week, and I've said some of these kinds of things from the pulpit before, but it's one of these things that's worth really mining into. It's, it's a concept called syncretism. And syncretism is an idea where we blend the values of our culture in with our faith. It's this blending together. And we often end up with competing values that we're living by. And sometimes it's hard to recognize those values, but they do blend together often. I don't know if those of you feel the tension somehow and sometimes, and maybe even as I'm talking, of saying, what would it mean to open up my hands and head into the unknown? But I'm also 54 years old and I sort of need to mitigate risk as a good steward, right? I mean, there's competing values in that. It's because we live in these blended philosophies and values of the culture around us, and they often make their way into our faith. A few examples that I use often include the statement that the church is a business. That's very much a syncretistical idea. It's one of those statements, again, that I cannot find anywhere in Scripture, that the church is a business. The church in the New Testament is simply the people of God following Jesus into the unknown, giving up whatever it would take in order to shine his light in the world and be part of his redemptive project. That's the church. They didn't have a steeple and a sign and chairs. And by the way, I will say this, I love the new coffee shop. I mean, I'm just going to say they wouldn't have had a coffee shop, but I love that new coffee shop. I'm going to, I think, sort of loiter uncomfortably throughout the week hoping for free coffee there. It's a cool place, but the church is not a business. It's never meant to be a business, and yet oftentimes the boardroom on Monday sort of mirrors and mimics the elder board meeting on a Thursday night. Same kind of thing. Another example that I've mentioned from the pulpit here before is of a syncretism is the idea that we tell our kids to be whatever they want to be. And that's very much an individualistic kind of American idea or value or philosophy. But if you read within the kingdom... It doesn't have any language along those lines in terms of how we would parent our kids. Uh, The language of scripture is that our lives are actually not our own. They've been bought with a price. And we are the beautiful image bearers and co-conspirators with God on behalf of his kingdom. That's our actual identity. One last example, and I really appreciated the song that we sang this morning, is the idea of blessing, right? When do we use hashtag blessed? It's a great example of a syncretism. We always use it when? When we get the job, when uh, the Vikings score a touchdown, (laughs) that's obvious, Uh, and uh, maybe when we get pregnant or other good things are happening in our life. Did you you hear that song? Those songs were all about uh, the actual blessedness of the text, like blessed are the broken and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are persecuted and blessed are you when you're spat upon and blessed are you when you, when havoc is wreaked in your life on behalf of your faith. These are different syncretisms, and risk mitigation is another syncretism. Where the older you get, the less risk you should take. The younger you get, the more risk you should take. 
But it's not true of the characters of scripture. And with all that in mind, we can head into the story of Ruth. We don't have a ton of time to walk through this entire beautiful book this morning. We'll read the first chapter, at least part of it, and see what we see from her life. And I invite you to stand as I read through some of this. I realize at 48 too that uh, I don't have my Bible up here with me and I'm going to hope I can read uh, that screen. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after, after they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Stay in Moab. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who would become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and that gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this they wept aloud again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped urging her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I know there's more words in the screen. There's lots of word of the Lord. You can sit down uh, right now. This is part of the 15% that, I, that I've studied. <laughs> So a few teaching points about this. First of all, it's helpful to know that the way geography works in the Bible is it's a real place, but it's also a place that is always speaking to something deeper and is symbolic of something more. So as I've said before, Egypt is a place that's a real place, but it's also a land where uh, Pharaoh has cut off the future and, and is destroying the identity of God's people, thus destroying their image. So Egypt's a place, but it's also teaching us something, and Moab works much the same way. Moab is a devastated place of sin. It is inhabited by the generations that have come from the decisions of Lot and his daughters, some incestuous decisions that when they didn't think God had a future ready for them or available for them, they took matters into their own hands and they decided to go ahead and engage with incest and birth a generation from there. 
So they rebelled against God. They resisted against God. They said, I know the way forward better. And so we will go ahead and create a future on our own. And the generations that rippled out from that decision increasingly became wicked and rebellious and stiff-necked and hard-hearted. So much so that Moab became sort of symbolic as this place of sin, and they were the mortal enemy of Israel. They worshipped the Baal gods, and they also propagated human sacrifice. It was an awful, dismal, terrible place to be. Now, with that, there is this man named Elimelech, Naomi's husband, whose name in the Hebrew literally means, my God is king. And so Elimelech, though, who believed that God was his king, as soon as there was famine in the land and didn't think that maybe there was future to be had in Israel, what did he do? He stopped trusting God, and he went to the land of sin because he absolutely believed that Moab would have a better future for him than what God was making available. You ever Can you ever empathize with Elimelech? Get a bit of absence in our life. We don't really know about the future. It gets really tempting to head to the land of sin for our future, does it not? So my God is king, heads to Moab, And what happens anytime somebody heads to a Moab? If they stay there, they die. And Elimelech died. There was no future for him. There sure looked like there was future for him, but there was no future for him there. Not only that, his sons, who should have been the carriers of the future, their names Malon and Kilian, their names in the Hebrew actually mean sickness and wasting. So along with Judas and Adolf, these are two names probably not to name your children. And so Elimelech goes to the land of sin, and his two boys, sickness and death, die as well. There is no future in the land of Moab. It's part of what is a reference to that great passage in John 3.16, that if you pull that out from its original language, it literally renders something like this, for God so loved the world that he sent his unique son among us, reminding us of the image that we are meant to be. So whoever counts on him or surrenders to him will not be walking on pathways that are futile and failing and perishing, as are all the pathways of sin, but will begin to be walking in an everlasting, indestructible way of life that is permanent and always has future and hope. Is what is at stake here as Elimelech and his two boys die in the land of sin. And when that happens, we see that Naomi is going to head back to the promised land. She's going to cross back over the Jordan River into the promised land, and her daughters-in-law, she says, stay here. And Orpah decides to stay. Now, believe it or not, Orpah in the Hebrew actually means stiff-necked. So now we have another reference in one of the great patterns of Scripture that when confronted by the fact that we want to live in the land of sin, people are often described as being stiff-necked if they will not yield, if they will not repent, if they will not turn and walk back. And so Orpah decides to make a future for herself in the land of sin, and we don't hear from her again. Ruth, however, her name means friend. And she's both a friend to Naomi here and a friend to God. She says, yes, she has the same title that is given in the text to other characters. Abraham is named a friend of God. And a friend of God is somebody who simply bends their knee and yields and walks into a future that is unknown on behalf of God's beautiful kingdom. Jesus says, I haven't called you in John chapter 15 to be my servant or to be my sheep. I've called you to be my friend. That alongside of me, I would lift your eyes and you can see uh, what my ever-redemptive activity is doing in this world. Will you stand alongside of me as a co-conspirator on behalf of my kingdom? It's going to cost you everything. 
to do so. The rich man couldn't do it, could he? Couldn't give it up when Jesus says to follow me. But Ruth says yes, and it's sort of hard to overestimate if you could crawl into her shoes for just a minute what it would mean to be a Moabite daughter of an incestuous relationship that is also a mortal enemy of the land in which you are about to walk. <laughs> there is no fu- Even Naomi says, there's no future for you here, Ruth. And Ruth says, I'm still going. She follows into the unknown and heads into the promised land. And we don't have time to read chapters two through four of Ruth there. Beautiful story of how Boaz, Naomi's brother-in-law, comes alongside the situation. And he and Ruth engage in this kind of beautiful dance back and forth and eventually end up married. And at one point, the two of them actually share bread and wine together. It's an incredible communion moment that sort of foreshadows the coming together of a Jewish man with with a Gentile woman that eventually is going to be the heart of the gospel as it explodes all over the world in the book of Acts to the Jews and to the Gentiles both, sharing communion at the table, saying yes to a future together in that way. It's a beautiful moment of togetherness in that. And then we see at the end of Ruth, then after they're married, we see these words. We'll put them up on the screen. I'll read through them quickly. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Think about what Naomi was going through in this moment. Her whole life believed that it was only her sons that had future. She could barely see that God actually was redeeming through a Moabite woman. Her entire future. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living that women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then this is the family of Perez. And if you keep going all the way down, I won't read through all of them. Jesse, the father of David. And this is how the book ends. And of course, we know who comes from the line of David at the end of the day. Jesus does. One of the keys to understanding a book of scripture like this is understand that how the book ends tells us a lot about what the author had in mind in telling the story of the scripture. Why did he tell the story of Ruth? And here is where I would suggest the sort of the pivot point of the sermon this morning. Ruth following into the unknown, it ends with the genealogy of what happens in the future as a result of her decision in the present. And so the pivot point is this, that when we decide to say yes to follow God into the unknown, it isn't to check something off our bucket list. It isn't to have some sort of self-actualization or to find some purpose or meaning for ourselves. To follow God in the unknown is always about interacting in the present on behalf of the future. To stand in the gap in the present on behalf of the future. Following God into the unknown is not so that I will have a better life. Following God into the unknown is to stand in the gap. And Ruth's unbelievably hard decision as a Moabite woman heading into the land of a mortal enemy redeemed an entire future of Moabite people whose only identity up until that time had been the incestuous daughters of Lot. And now every future Moabite would know the story of Ruth and it would know there's a different choice and there's a different way. And not only that, we see that a redeemer was ultimately born from her. And I just made me think about the relevance. Is there anybody here this morning that needs to be a part of redeeming the past from which you've come on behalf of the future? 
I know my young people, I talk with them a lot, in a society that is increasingly fractured and broken and very difficult to walk in, I don't tell them that you can be anything you want to be. I tell them in the classroom that you can go ahead and give your life to a king. And your life might not be pleasant and pretty and filled with health and wealth, but you can stand in the gap and redeem the future on behalf of the past. If you want to say yes. It's also relevant, I think, just for life as a church. This is not just an individualistic journey. It is a corporate community journey. And I think about how, as a church, to follow God into the unknown, instead of putting business practices in play to try to create a healthy organization, (laughs) is a very different kind of mindset. But here's what I know. The millennial generation, the ones coming up after me, you know what their primary religious affiliation is? It's none. We're done with organized religion. They've seen enough of the scandals, enough of the gossip, enough of the power plays, enough of the divisions, and said we're done with organized religion. And so they're cobbling together a spirituality increasingly from multiple religious traditions, using crystals over here, getting a bit of the Bible over here, maybe practicing some Zen over here. There's some good things from the Baha'i faith over here, cobbling together a personal spirituality. I wonder what it would mean for a church to follow God into the unknown on behalf of the future. And here's what I know about you here and the kinds of questions that Kevin asked. These are the questions. But I also have to say, in fairness, I travel quite a bit and I also meet a lot of different people. There's just not many religious organizations asking those questions. What does it mean on behalf of the future? We sort of go to church on how it's going to benefit us, right? (laughs) We church shop and do these things. And it's understandable, I think, on some levels, but the call of Scripture is that a a group of people would bend their knee and follow God into the unknown. But it's risky to do so. Must only be for the young, not for the old. Certainly not if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s. But then I actually read the Bible and, well, not all of it, just some, and saw that Noah was 600 years old. Two-thirds of his life was gone when he decided to follow God by building an ark in a place that had never had rain. (laughs) And that was part of redeeming the future. We see that Abram and Sarai were moving towards 100 years old with more than 80% of their life passed. And when God said, leave it all and follow me, they did. Moses was a shepherd. Two-thirds of his life gone when the bush began to burn. And God said, it's time to head to Pharaoh to be part of my redemptive future. And did you know that Moses never made it into the promised land? It was not for him. It was for the future. But it's not just for the old, it's for the sinful. Rahab was a young prostitute when she put her life on the line on behalf of the Hebrew people. Esther stood in front of an evil king and said, if I perish, I perish. A teenage boy stood in front of an armored giant so that the rest of the generations would not be enslaved to the Philistines. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one of my favorite stories, right? This big hot furnace is in front of them. They say, we are not going to yield to you, O king. We're going to walk into that furnace. And then they said these beautiful and profound words. Our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will still follow. And that converted a king. Paul poured out his life as a drink offering. Peter followed a dream, and an entire household was converted. And a young virgin girl when an angel inexplicably came to her, said, let it be done unto me as you have said. I will follow, and a star appeared in the east, and the great redemption of the world appeared. It is the primary pattern of scripture. If you want to partner in God's redemptive activity, 
Yes, read your Bible. Yes, have your quiet times. Yes, go to church. But you can do all of those things. And if you've never bent your knee to follow God into the unknown, it will be increasingly difficult to partner in what he's up to. Because the call to scripture is to leave it all behind, if needed. And that's our heritage. (laughs) These are our people. You don't need to swab your cheek and send it into some database to find out from which you've come. They're all over the Bible. This is the kingdom of which we're a part. These are our ancestors. Read Hebrews 11 and you see these ancestors and the way they walked it out. I don't know if you know that my mom is here this morning. (laughs) But she is. And uh, we've been laughing a bit (laughs) about they, they finally swabbed their cheeks. And, uh, and sent him in. And I grew up thinking for sure that I was 100% German. I mean, I was a thoroughbred, right? I mean, I took great pride in this mashed potato and corn. Uh, it made perfect sense all mixed together as it would in a German household. And then they swabbed their cheek and it turns out that my mom is like half Belgium and now she's dead to me. I don't know <laughs> what to do with that. My dad has all sorts of crazy ancestry and so I don't even know who I am anymore related to that. But there is one piece of it that, uh, and I have my dad's permission to share some of this. This morning, as I'm part of their family, yes, by blood and by biology. But what I'm terribly grateful for is that I'm part of their family because of the kingdom of which we're a part. Because my dad, when he was a young man, not much to do with God or with the kingdom, growing up in this German Catholic family, large table each day. <laughs> Food hopefully coming from the farm. They would pray the prayer, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Whoever eats the fastest gets the most. (laughs) But not much of the things of God set out to make a way for himself into his 20s and was successful by many earthly metrics. And then God got a hold of him in his 30s and began the process of letting go of this life. Not an easy process. But heading into his early 60s, in which all risk should be mitigated, right? 15 years ago, he didn't believe in retirement. He asked God what he could do in the last quarter of his life. What a dangerous, risky prayer that is. And in the 15 years since, God has taken a nondescript, averagely educated German Catholic man all the way to Africa, translating the Bible for millions of people. Audiences with bishops and civic leaders and denominational figures of Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, somehow cutting a swath through all of the denominational divides. I think I can fairly say the dude is way in, way over his head. (laughs) Can I get an amen, dad? (laughs) Amen. Now 76, still cramming into the coach section of an airplane to travel days throughout third world conditions, suffering pain and turmoil and sweat and uncertainty to bring the kingdom to whoever will hear. And he's not even as old as Moses yet. (laughs) I think about my father a lot. I think about my mother a lot, could tell same stories, and about how their lives and standing in the gap on behalf of the future then presented me with a choice. I was the Moab left behind from the Ruth who went forward, and I had a different choice. I had a different option. I had people who had borne witness in the present, taking on very difficult realities on behalf of the future, and my children have a choice, and that choice is between uh, continuing with the business that I do and fancy degrees and important titles and trying to build a name for myself and all of those things we do in life, and I get it, but at the end of the day, all those pathways perish, every one of them. But I can see, in the contrast, my father giving his life for future generations, 
that they may too know the light and be called back into the kingdom. And it all becomes pretty obvious to me that as stumbling as I do so, as hard as it is, as lonely as it sometimes feels, here's what I know. I too have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And I had it out with God not long ago and said, you know, even if I had to do this whole journey alone, should none follow, I still would. But the good news is, is that we're not alone in this thing. I know many of you have made the same decision from the past and in the future, and your decisions are ultimately different than mine. I don't know what has been in your past. I don't know what God is calling you to in the future. But it's the same invitation that has stood for generations throughout the biblical stories of Scripture. This is not a do-whatever-you-want-to-do, be-whatever-you-want-to-be life. The question in front of us all is, will we be a bondservant of the king and follow into the unknown? And it may cost you everything. So as we sort of wrap this up and head into the communion table, I think one of my hopes would be is that somebody who is maybe 90-plus years old here will send me a Snapchat video (laughs) later this week and says, here's how I've decided in whatever remaining years I have to say yes. Because it doesn't know an age limit. And you don't know what you can do in even those last few days of your life. One of the most significant things that's happened in my own journey is when a mentor of mine, when he was past 90 years old and he was sitting in his chair in the last stages of being ravaged by leukemia, could barely get up anymore. And my wife Hallie and I went into his room at his apartment. His wife had passed just a few years before. No future ahead of him. But you know what he taught us? He taught us even how to die well. He taught us that Jesus showed us the way by saying in those last breaths, so into your hand, Father, I commit my spirit. Into the unknown of the waters of death that come, I still will yield. It's the only way through him. And we watched him do that. And he sat in that chair and we said our final goodbye. And as we turned our face away from him and started walking towards the door of the apartment, suddenly he called out from behind, keep shining. And those words have echoed in my soul to this day. In one last dying breath, he gave a gift of life. You can do this even in your 90s with just a couple of days left. You can do it when you're 18. If you're 18 this morning, yes, go to college, build a resume, blah, 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 all that important stuff. But know this, there's only one source of life and light for your feet and on the path ahead. We spent a lot of years trying to build a resume and a career to try to build stability and then we can die in peace with enough money, right? Or you can follow a different path. But that is what the kingdom is about. We follow on behalf of the future for our lives are not our own. They've been bought with a price. And this is what it means to celebrate communion. This is what it means to pick up our crosses and to follow Jesus for a lifetime. So we're going to head to the communion table here in just a minute. What I'll do is just take a short time of prayer. Communion stewards can come forward during this time of prayer. I don't know how God speaks always. Uh, it's well beyond my pay grade. But I would invite you just during a short time of prayer and a little silence that I'll create space for here to just decide again, say yes again to following God in the unknown. I find it's uh, one of the most helpful parts of that last uh, 17% of my heart <laughs> that I need to do each day to try to just yield some of those really, really hard places. And so let's enter into a short time of prayer. And Beth, you'll join me at the communion table and we'll share this beautiful sacrament together. Let's pray.
God, uh, as we sang this morning, uh, great is your faithfulness. Uh, Thank you for being faithful. And just create space now for your people to hear your voice in just a few moments of silence to say, yes, lead again today. Help me take my hands off of the things that I hold so tightly so that I can be a co-conspirator with you on behalf of your kingdom.